0: Campbell with the Food Institute and welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. This week we have City National Bank's Steve Ramirez and RBC Capital Markets Nick Modi on the show and we're going to be talking about the alcohol outlook for the rest of the year with a focus on the emerging legal drinking age consumer, new flavor profiles, and what products will remain hot. But before we get started, I wanted to thank the sponsor for this episode and that's City National Bank. City National's Food and Beverage Group combines financial expertise with an insider's understanding of opportunities, challenges, and trends. They get in the fields, the manufacturing plants, and the warehouses to discover what their clients face day in and day out because they're more than just transactions. They get out from behind the desk and into their client's world. From processing and manufacturing to production and distribution, they'll provide you with the solutions and advice you need to achieve your strategic financial objectives. And for more information, please visit cnb.com slash food and beverage. So with that out of the way, welcome to the show, Steve and Nick. Can you introduce yourself, Steve?
1: Yeah, Hey, it's, it's Steve Ramirez at City National Bank um, with the Food and Beverage Group, and uh, and and very happy to be here with the Food Institute.
0: And how about you, Nick?
2: Yeah, my name's Nick Modi. I'm the Senior Consumer Staples Analyst at RBC Capital Markets. Really happy to be with you guys to talk about the beverage alcohol space.
0: Thanks for sharing, guys, and I think that's a great place to start. Steve, could you open up maybe sharing a little bit about your overall impressions of the beverage alcohol market?
1: No, I, I think the, the, the alcohol industry is... is heading towards a soft you know a soft environment um you know there are some higher gas prices right now um on average is probably you know five dollars across the united states and the other thing is inflation you know we're we're seeing it increasing in the last two months but finally it just went down so i I think consumers right now should be a little bit more price conscious on on what they're reaching for and um I, i think some of the premium Beer or wine or spirits categories um, may, may, may see that, that hit. And Nick, I don't know if that's what you're seeing as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bifurcated, right? I think what we are seeing is definitely trade down within the beer category, but not the kind of really high end into the mid tier or low end. It's more of like your domestic premiums, um, you know, Budweiser, Bud Light, Coors Light, Metal Light. Mm-hmm. We are seeing some some trade down to the value end. I mean, if you actually look at the overall beverage alcohol category, I mean, household penetration actually went up two points since the pandemic started. So more households are actually in the category, and and that is actually stuck. Um, And, you know, while I agree with Steve that economy is going to definitely put pressure, um, the data that we have we're looking at at this point would not indicate uh, that we're seeing trade down. In fact, you know, consumer work would suggest that once consumers trade up, in certain categories, um, they're very hesitant to trade down even during tough economic times because there's a distinct quality difference between the products, right? Think about premium w- wine versus you know um, lower end wine as an example. Um, now, I think the overall consumer goods space will come under pressure due to the economy as Steve suggested, but there are pockets um, of the beverage alcohol category that I think will continue to do well. Like spirits are definitely outperforming beer and wine I would expect that to continue. Um, I would expect within the traditional beer category, the way you want to call it, it's really a lot of the growth is coming from beyond beer, right? The RTD yeah. cocktails, the flavored malt beverages, the hard teas, and the hard seltzers, and so I think that's going to be an area of continued outperformance in general. And then high-end beer, of course, when you think about um, Constellations brands portfolio like Corona, Modelo Especial, but also Michelob Ultra.
0: So that's kind of interesting to hear that right here, that you know, consumers might be sticking with higher-priced you know, priced items, higher-quality items, you might be able to argue as well, even amid these inflationary pressures. So I'm wondering, what is really driving that, Nick? Are, are you saying that it's mostly just because people had a taste of that item and now they're not willing to trade down, they kind of got acclimated to it? Is that kind of the dynamic there, or is there something else that's happening?
2: Yeah, I think that has some uh, – that's part of it, is that consumers um, like that experience at the higher end. And, and think about um, just – premiumization in general, we've seen it happen even during the economic crisis of the kind of great financial crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are gravitating and in and, and look, I cover beauty companies too. And so one thing we find in, in beauty is that even in economic downturns, consumers still migrate to prestige beauty products because it's an affordable luxury, right? You know, yeah. we, we talk about and we sometimes we kid about retail therapy, but it's a real thing. Like people actually like to buy things to make themselves feel better. And certainly buying uh, a 12 pack of your favorite hard seltzer or, or Corona or Modelo Especial is a lot cheaper than buying a, a new uh, handbag or, or what have you. So um, I think this affordable luxury thing is is something that we should all be considering. Nick, Nick in, in your data, have
1: you seen um, in terms of volume, are people purchasing less but higher higher quality or is it just kind of... How, how is that working now? Are, are people just drinking less now?
2: Yeah, it's it's actually very bifurcated, Steve. So mm-hmm. the um, th- there is a, a, a portion of those lower income consumers that are, in mm-hmm. fact, doing exactly what you're saying. They're reducing frequency, but they're also trading down. But when it gets to the more middle and higher income consumers, we're not seeing that. In fact, if you look at what's happening on premise, right, we're seeing double, almost triple digit growth right now as people are getting – back out and, and getting mobile again. So that's driving part of the category. I think really to me, the interesting dynamic of what's happening right now is not necessarily what's going on with the category in totality, but it's these microcosms within the category, right? And that's really where companies, distributors, retailers should really be thinking in terms of where can I get into those pockets of, of opportunity within the category.
0: So yeah, let's start there, right? Let's take a look at those three big categories. I know you just mentioned them, Nick. So wine and beer and spirits, right? So you're saying right now spirits has the largest growth. I'm thinking, you know, what about wine and beer specifically? Let's break those both down. Maybe we could start with you, Nick, taking a look at wine, you're saying that we had some people trading up for premium, but what would you say for the category overall with wine right now? Would you say it's an optimistic outlook for the market, you know, pessimistic compared to last couple years? How would you kind of rate it?
2: Yeah, I, I, again, it's, 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 a very, it's a tale of two cities. That's, I think, what makes this so interesting, right, is that talking about the category in totality, I don't think does justice in really understanding how the consumer is behaving. And so what we're seeing is very clear ongoing trade-up within the wine category. So that kind of $15 and above. I mean, mm-hmm. Duckhorn um, Portfolio Companies just reported their earnings, and they had phenomenal results. And part of that is this on-premise recovery right? And then people are going back to tasting rooms. So that's really where you get a lot of the good margin, because you're getting some of that expensive wine that's coming right out of your tasting room. So I think there's some really interesting dynamics there. The low end of the category continues to struggle. And that has been the case even before the pandemic. Um, and we see a similar dynamic in the spirits category as well.
0: And Steve, what about beer? Do you see the same thing there? Yeah, same kind of, uh, you know, dynamic with that tail of two cities kind of, you know, tale right there. Yeah, I, I think I think
1: it's the same thing in beer. You know, beer has historically been declining um, for, for for a while now, and what they are seeing an uplift, as as Nick suggested, is the alt beer, the beyond beer space, the, the hard seltzers, the, the hard iced tea, the the um, you know other hard, hard hard flavor malt beverages that other companies are adding to their you know to their product mix and trying to keep keep it afloat. Um, you know, Bud Light Seltzer is a good example of that. Um, you know, a lot of these beer companies are going that way and try to augment it, and, and I think I think we're, it's not going to stop, and um, we are going to have a few players that win.
2: Yeah, and and Chris, if I could just add on to, you know, this whole notion of how this category is going to do in an inflationary environment, right? If you really look at it, you know, beer, wine, spirits have become you know, a household staple really if you think about it beverage alcohol spending is only two percent on average of overall us spending so you know we go back to that whole affordable luxury commentary you know this is you know a very um clear manifestation of that and it's not that big of a, a percent of the wallet um second most uh while most beverage alcohol companies have actually taken pricing the average price increase is actually in the mid single digits range and that's lower than what we're seeing in other food and beverage and household personal care categories. So on a relative basis, uh, the category is actually still looking pretty good from a value perspective. And then also you have to remember the trade down alternatives are pretty um, modest because there's really limited private label exposure in this category relative to other consumer packaged goods sectors.
1: Right. Hey Nick, did you think that companies, that uh, beer has such a, a strong um, price elasticity could they go even more or is that what they're talking about is that something they're considering going going yeah. forward
2: i i think price elasticity in the beer category is obviously you know pretty favorable when you look at other segments of the consumer yeah. packaged kids market however and this again gets into the nuance right you have companies like constellation um, that have been taking one to two price increases for like the last decade every year. Right. And yeah. they've been very strategic in terms of the pack size and where they actually take the price increases. Whereas you have other players, ABI, Miller cores, et cetera, that take more episodic pricing. So they're, yeah. they're now looking for pricing closer to like 5%. Right. Yeah. So again, it, it, it actually is really fascinating when you look at what's going on within the segment and that, I think, is going to partly contribute to Constellation and Modello and, and Corona actually gaining more share um, during this pricing cycle.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. And you know, one of the questions we had before is, what could legacy alcohol producers do to maintain that share? I think two of the things that are coming out here, Steve, to your point, you're seeing them kind of go into these alternative, you know, more than beer categories, but also, you know, also taking a look at their current portfolio and either doing, you know additions to it, you know, really trying to expand what they currently have, taking that capital. Bud Light was the example you brought up, right? So obviously everyone knows what Bud Light is, but now you have Bud Light Limeritas, you have Bud Light Seltzers, you have Bud Light Teas, right? So really taking that legacy brand, I think, is something that these guys will be able to do. Uh, And then also, you know, take that new spin on it. And I think that's a great segue into these emerging alcohol types, because, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I don't think there was anything hotter than canned seltzers. But I think that's really kind of slid off a little bit over the last year or so, maybe it's just because we've seen so many new entrants into the field. But I'm wondering, you know, when we're taking a look at, you know, younger consumers, what are they looking for? What's the next thing after the seltzer, would you argue at this point, Steve? Any other kind of product types that they're looking at for right now?
1: Yeah, I think that that's a good point, right? There was the, the, the summer of seltzer happened as, as COVID started, um, and it's, it's probably um, slowed down a little. But I, I think what's, what's going on is a lot of the emerging consumers would would go towards more uh, a a more fruit fruitful flavor profile something that's more health conscious i think that's what that's what's top of mind with them and 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 something like canned cocktails is probably a really good example of what may you know what may take off this summer i I think canned canned cocktails are coming through and uh, it's an easy alternative to going to the bar and um i think that's what a lot of the younger consumers We'll, we'll we'll go towards
0: i wouldn't call myself a younger consumer but i did see an ad for a jameson ginger lime can cocktail and as a beer drinker myself i took a look at this thing and i was like you know hits the convenience aspect of just being able to buy it in a box right maybe a little i mean healthy is maybe going and overstating it a little bit, but comparing it to the calorie profile of the beer, you know, like I think as a lot of consumers taking a look at, especially during the summertime, I think this is kind of weighing on them, you know? I don't know if healthy is the right word. I know, Nick, you've talked on the show a little bit about the difference between health and wellness, but I think maybe healthier is the word uh, de jour there when you're taking a look at these products. So when you see these products coming out, is that one of the things you think is really motivating consumers?
2: Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really interesting. Like you think about this, segment of the quote unquote beer category, right? The hard seltzers, the RTD cocktails. What is that really, you know, what is, what is really driving that? It's, it's this mm-hmm. mer- emergence or convergence, I should say, of health and wellness and convenience, right? You're now, instead of carrying that Cosmopolitan or that uh, vodka soda <laughs> and some glass and potentially spilling it, you have it in a very convenient package type and you can make it portable, right? And so I think that's really kind of an undertone that's driving this. Um, but there's also this whole flavor profile thing. And if you think about the Gen Z, I mean, they are less reliant on beer and wine than preceding generations. Only 50% of Gen Z drinkers reported consuming wine regularly compared to 59% for millennials and 43% report drinking beer regularly versus 58% for millennials. So you're actually seeing this shift. And if you look at some of the work that numerator insights has done, Gen Z consumes spirits with the same frequency as millennials. But are more likely to choose categories like tequila, vodka, cognac, and whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if you really think about what's going on with the actual subsegments, that's really interesting. And from the wine side, you know, you, you have a lot of sparkling varieties that have that have come in vogue with with this particular consumer group, like champagne and prosecco. So again, you know, really to get to the opportunities, right? You have to really, really get into the nuances of each subsegment.
1: Yeah, and and what does that what does that do, Nick? Right, when when younger generations, they um, young consumers, spend a lot of the time in COVID. You know, bars are closed. H- have they gotten comfortable not going to the bar, not going out to restaurants, and just being more in you know different social settings that you know most likely a bartender is not going to be there, and a canned cocktail does is a good alternative there.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we we uh, we've been talking about this for for a number of years, actually, even before the pandemic. Um, this kind of new legal drinking age consumer group uh, has been staying home more often than their preceding generations, right? They've been cocooning. They obviously have a lot of streaming opportunities. They have social media. They're just getting out less. And so, and they're pre-gaming more at home. So absolutely. This is actually interesting. One of the reasons why I think spirits are doing so well on premise is because when people were home, you were buying your wine or beer, you know, and- you kind of now know what the reference point is, right? The pricing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can buy a bottle of this wine for $14, but when I go to the bar or restaurant, I'm paying $14 for just a glass. What you can't do with reference pricing is cocktails. You can't really kind of replicate the home experience in a bar and restaurant. It's just a better experience, right? And you don't really have context on what it costs because you're not Mm -hmm. really doing the math on all the different ingredients. And I think that's kind of an interesting angle on what we can call a value equation difference between spirits and beer and wine, right, is that you can get that experience in a bar and restaurant. And I think that's a key driver of why spirits have been gaining even more share since the pandemic started.
0: I think it also plays into how experimental this generation is, too, to your point, Nick, you know anyone can pour a glass of wine or a beer but it takes someone with some level of skill to put together a cocktail right so they're looking Mm. for that experiential kind of opportunity but also i think maybe even just exposure because when you go to many bars you know and with the world reopening i think some people are going back out and checking this out Uh, a lot of bars really do have more robust cocktail menus than i remember even going down some places like even chain restaurants are really leaning in on this so i think that experimental part you know kind of leads into that and you definitely see more options, but you know, one of the things we've seen across food and beverage, you know, and alcohol too, is that Gen Z and younger consumers really do seem to be way more experimental on a lot of these different types of products. So Steve, taking a look at that, you know, what do you think is really kind of driving that in the alcohol sector? Do you think, you know, it's just because they have extra exposure to these products? Do you think there's some other kind of dynamic that's pushing them to these different and new emerging products? I mean,
1: I think with, with, with the new legal drinking age, Folks, they're spending a lot of their time in social media. They're they're heavily influenced by Instagram um, ads and targeted ads. It, it, that that that's that's what a lot of the companies they're spe- you know using their marketing spend on. And I, I would say, celebrity backed influencers are, are definitely a a, a huge you know, a huge deal for for those folks. And you know, to the extent for emerging brands. They're they they're, they're going to push heavily on on consumers that haven't fully formed their taste profile, whether it's you know whether it's beer, whether it's IPA or wine, you know Merlot, Cabernet. There's just so many different categories that they can go through, and if there, there's a suggestion that that they they like, maybe they'll go for it and stick with it.
2: Yeah, and I think you know just kind of layering on top of that, you know, you think about the demographic of the Gen Z consumer, this new legal drinking age consumer. They're much more multicultural, different taste buds and taste profiles in terms of what they like. And that's partly what's driving some of this migration to some of these other subsegments. In fact, in a study done by Drizzly, uh, the company highlighted Gen Z over-indexes heavily uh, to sub-categor- subcategories like hard lemonade, hard iced tea, malt liquor, hard seltzer, kombucha, cider, and sour ale. And among Gen Z consumers on the platform, Loverboy and Twest, Twisted Tea are the top two brands. As mm-hmm. they both skew towards light and fruity flavors. So, you know, and, and low sugar um, and also added ingredients like probiotics and antioxidants. So I think all of this is kind of, you know, over the years has been layering on top of this consumer groups, taste preferences. And it's interesting, right? Like back in my day, I, I never would have imagined drinking wine out of a box or a Tetra box. <laughs> But this legal drinking age consumer is very comfortable doing that. Why? Because they grew up on, you know, those Capri Suns and the sippy, uh, sippy boxes or whatever, juice boxes, whatever you want to call it. So it's very comfortable to them. So, so that's why we have to kind of understand how, these, how this generation actually has grown up to really understand why they're doing what they're doing right now.
0: And I'd like to jump back in on one of the points Steve made there about celebrity backed or influenced or backed brands. You know, uh, having a spokesperson is nothing new, but one of the things I really notice about a lot of these spirits brands is that they seem to have like an operational stake in it as well. So I think that kind of lends itself to the credibility aspect a little bit. It's not just a spokesperson, but when you get, you know, The Rock's tequila, you know that he has, you know, an, an ownership stake in it. And if you're a fan of The Rock, it's not just him shelling his image out, right? It's, you know, a little bit deeper than that. And I think we're seeing that across the food and beverage continuum. We've seen a lot of, Celebrity-backed kind of marketing. You know, this is completely off-topic from uh, alcohol, but taking a look at what McDonald's did a couple of years ago, partnering up with rappers and singers, and it wasn't just getting their name on there; it was getting what their preferences were. And I think this is, you know, kind of to your point, Nick, that we're seeing these people at home you know, watching more streaming connected to social media, you're seeing them connect with these influencers or and or celebrities, but it's not just connected directly to like I said, you know, oh, I'm a fan of this person. It's more about the ethos and the connection there too. So I think that is an important thing that we want to keep an eye on going forward. But I was wondering if you guys have any follow up to that, just kind of taking a look at, you know, kind of that evolution of the celebrity backed, you know, endorsement basically. And now it seems to be, maybe it's not, maybe it is just, you know, on the face, just them having some kind of ownership stake. But I do think a lot of consumers take a look at that and maybe have a deeper connection to these brands than they may have in the past.
2: Yeah, I I think, I think it's actually deeper than just celebrity backed, right? I think, you know, one thing we recently did is we put out a 2025 report on kind of assessing the consumer landscape and the lens of what the future is going to look like. And one of the themes that has come out of that study is what we call the individual revolution, which is centers of influence are shifting away from institutions, so your traditional marketing by a corporation, and towards the individual, right? Because we as a society in general, our levels of trust in institutions, whether, whether, whether they be education, healthcare, uh, government, uh, corporations, has, has continued to decline. And right, so we're looking to our social circles to give us uh, recommendations um, and reviews and what products we should be consuming. And so I think part of this is celebrity driven, but I think the broader undertone of he, of this dynamic is really this individual revolution in that we as consumers are looking to people like ourselves or people that we can align around, for instance, mm-hmm. the rock, um, and really have that drive our, our choices.
1: And, and I, I think, I think there is some companies that are really successful where, if you just show one celebrity on a beach, you know that is Corona, and you know that that that's something. That, whether it's Snoop Dogg or Bad Bunny or any of these celebrities that 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 they that they reference, there's some brands that have been synonymous with beach or you know Heineken. Um, there's Michelob Ultra. There's tons of examples of where if once the commercial starts running, you kind of have an idea of what's going to happen or who it's going to be. Um, and I think I think that's really really right, Nick. Um, it, it's all individual preferences and, and people kind of know what's gonna happen before it happens.
2: And consistency is the key, right? Like if you exactly. think about the brands, you know, think about Corona as an example, right? Mm-hmm. I know I keep on bringing that up, but it's, it's a great example. It's growing in a category that's not growing, right? And that's yeah. been for a long time. And it's a pretty big yeah. brand. Why is that happening? It's because they, Constellation, was incredibly consistent on the brand message. So you know what it stands for, right? Some of the other domestic premium brands, I don't think have done as good of a job and that's why they're they're losing market share.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Corona is very interesting considering, you know, the last two years, what could have been massive headwinds against their PR with a pandemic that shared their name for them to still be growing. is really <laughs> A testament, right, to what they've been able to do. And I think you're right, Steve, it is that, you know, how synonymous they were with, you know, being on the beach, relaxing, et cetera. Because they put all that, you know, collateral in for years, getting consumers used to that, they were able to kind of, you know, move past what, like I said, could have been, you know, a very strong PR headwind for them. Uh, One of the last things I want to bring up on this call today, I know we've been talking about alcohol, but one of the things that's really been interesting for me that I've seen has just been this trend for no and low alcohol, cocktails, beer, wine, etc., So I just kind of want to start off, Steve, what do you think is kind of pushing this, you know, new trend that we're starting to see? Do you think this is one that is completely health and wellness? What do you, like, what do you think is kind of driving this year?
1: It's, it's probably health and wellness and, and, you know, the emergence of dry January, right. A couple of years ago, wasn't that big of, of, of a, of a month, but now most recently, I think I read somewhere 29% of, um, of the people that participated in Dry January, also participated in non-alcoholic beer or low-alcoholic beer. You know, brands like Athletic Brewing that, that are make are, are coming up, and it, it it probably has to do with an alternative uh, for social settings for some folks, in like Dry January or other you know, work events. I, I think it's 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 coming up for that. What do you think, Nick?
2: yeah look compared to millennials gen z drinks slightly less right so we have to kind of use that as a starting point why is that happening i think social media is a big reason right Uh, one of the studies that we looked at uh, by numerator uh suggested that that younger generation actually has cut back on their alcohol consumption because they're afraid of uh social media you know a negative post if if they if they drink or consume too much And so I think that's a really important thing that we have to understand, right, is that this is a uh, something that is linked to social media directly, actually, almost risk aversion.
0: It's a really interesting kind of viewpoint to take a look at, you know, first generation that grew up with social media. So clearly, you know, they fully understand the uh, risks inherent, I guess. Right. Um, You have anything else on that, Steve? I thought I saw you were about to bring something up there.
1: Yeah, I I think. Um, Nick, you probably know more what the market shares, but, um, you know, there, there is an emergence of, of, of brands and I think Athletic Brewing, um, I read somewhere recently, has a national partnership with Buffalo Wild Wings in, in, in a thousand stores. And, um, you know, I think that that's something that we're going to be seeing more and more often in the public.
0: And Steve, to your point too there, I've had athletic brewing and, you know, compared to a lot of the other 0% alcohol beers where it seems like the whole purpose is just to make a beer and then strip the alcohol out of it, having a product that's designed specifically to replicate the flavor profile of a beer while having no or low alcohol, I think is another big part of this is just the options that are available, especially for a demographic that is so, you know, interested in trying new things for them to see new emerging brands that are really trying to Create, like I said, a full flavor profile for a beer without alcohol. And it is definitely something that will probably turn a couple of heads, especially people that, you know, summertime, you're looking for that same experience, but you want no alcohol. You know, a product that actually replicates it without, you know, losing that taste profile really works out well. Uh, Taking a look at the categories that could lose out the most of this trend though, what do you think it would be, Steve? Do you think beer wine spirits, if you had to rate, what do you think is most at
1: risk for, you know, these no low alcohol trends? It's it's probably beer, in, in my opinion. Um, they're most likely kind of hand in hand. Um, you know, non-alcohol wine. There are a few brands out there, um, and and I'm not too too sure about the spirits, but I think beer is most likely would be affected by it.
0: Yeah, and I guess when I say spirits, I really mean you know cocktails, right? Yeah. I'm not sure there are yeah. any you know zero alcohol tequilas out there, but I may <laughs> I may be wrong. What do you think, Nick?
2: Yeah, no, that I mean, you know, you're you're starting to see a lot more mocktails on yeah. restaurant menus these days. And they're with non-alcohol spirits brands like Ritual or Seedlip or Spiritless Kentucky 74. So that does exist and it, it is a growing trend. And you know, what's interesting is that, you know, this whole notion of convergence, whether it be, you know, wine, beer, and spirits in a in a seltzer, right? Or it's Uh, non-alc, you know, like a a Mountain Dew hard seltzer, as an example, using a traditional non-alc brand on an alcohol product, you're Mm -hmm. seeing convergence Mm -hmm. happen all over the place. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the big companies are also getting into the non-alc spirits, beer and wine game. And so I I would expect this to be a, a, a growing area of focus over the coming years.
0: So guys, Nick, Steve, want to thank you both for your time today. Really, really excited to get this out to everybody and share your experiences and your, you know, your insights. So thanks again, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that'll do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. I want to thank City National Bank once again for sponsoring this episode. And I just want to remind everybody to take a look for the Food Institute podcast on LinkedIn. It's separate from the traditional Food Institute LinkedIn. And we share a whole bunch of stuff there, including extras from each episode. So make sure you give us a follow there. So with that said, we'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off.